the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This is our first episode for 2024 and this episode I'll be chatting with Phil Guy, Managing Director Elkhath Group and David Devine, General Manager of Malori Solutions. Gentlemen, welcome to the show and could you please give us a quick review of your careers to date, your backgrounds and also some information about the organisations you're representing. Thank you and a very good morning and thank you for inviting us on to your first podcast for 2024. My name is Phil Guy. I'm the current Managing Director of the Alcath Group. That incorporates two companies. It incorporates Global Defence Solutions and it incorporates Malori Solutions. I'll let my colleague Dave, who's going to talk in a moment, just to uh, talk a little bit about more of that. Uh, For the Global Defence Solutions, that's our other arm that looks after uh, deployable force infrastructure. So this is where we provide life support to to our troops in the field through soft shelters, containers, air conditioning, those sorts of things. Um, For the listeners, my background, I was uh, a former Royal Navy electromagnetic warfare specialist uh, back in the early 80s. And I transferred to the Australian Navy back in 1987. I used the electromagnetic spectrum in campaigns such as the Falklands. I used it at the uh, tanker war uh, for the uh, Iran and Iraq in 86 and 87. And I finished up with the first Gulf War back in the early 90s. Dave. Thank you, Grant, for the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners today. It's a wonderful opportunity. My background is that I've served for 29 years with the British Army. And in in 2006, I was fortunate enough to arrive in Australia into the Australian Army as a lateral transfer, where I served another 15 years. Now, in both armies, I I operated as an electronic warfare operator and a signals intelligence practitioner and a planner. I've obviously served in all the various spots around the world over the last 40 years, all the hotspots. And in 2021, Phil selected me to be the general manager of Molori Solutions, where I've worked since. I do maintain contact with the Army through my reserve time, which I'm, I really enjoy as well. Um, just a little bit about Molori Solutions. We're an Australian veteran-owned small to medium enterprise that Phil established. And we've got three offices, one in Nara one in Adelaide, and the one I'm working from today in Toowoomba. We employ veterans, who, all of whom have got operational experience in the electronic warfare area, and we have some gifted engineers and technicians who specialise in our three main areas, testing, training, and technology. And we support all three services of the Australian Defence Force and some of our industry partners. And looking into the future, we're looking to provide capabilities into AUKUS Pillar 2, and for anyone who's not sure, that's the non-submarine part. <laughs> Thank you. The, the fun part for those of us who like all the uh, hypersonics and electromagnetic gear and so on. Absolutely. Exactly. Gentlemen, you've clearly got quite the experience and the background. Uh, so we've picked the right couple of people to come on and chat about MSO here on the show. But for those who may not have read the ADM articles about electromagnetic warfare and so on, can you give me an overview for the audience, not, not a huge one, just a bucket overview of what exactly is electromagnetic spectrum operations, uh, what's electronic warfare, all that kind of stuff? Sure. Um, and a great sort of segue into what we're going to talk about, Grant. Um, to refresh people's minds, the electromagnetic spectrum is the physical vehicle that we use to transmit information through the air. 
we're using it more and more and everybody from commercial now to military um, is using the spectrum all the time so if you have a cell phone You'll be sending and receiving calls. You'll be sending and receiving messages. Uh, Google Maps. Everybody uses Google Maps to get from A to B. Well, of course, that's using the spectrum. Um, and, of course, your wireless router at home. If you want to send pictures, if you're going to send data between uh, your mobile devices, you're going to be using your wireless router at home that you get from Telstra, Optus. And, of course, the good old car radio. We've been using it for years. We're driving up to Sydney. Um, and of course, all of those radio stations transmit information that's picked up by your car and you get the radio in your car. So when you look at the spectrum, it is all around us. It's used every day. It's just because you can't see it a lot of the time is that you don't really think about it like that. But if I put it into military context, and what the electromagnetic spectrum does for the military, it will do all sorts of tasks, and it has done for many years. Intelligence gathering, targeting, communications, as we spoke about before, navigation. That is what we, for years, have been using in the military the electromagnetic spectrum for. What is it in simple terms? The electromagnetic warfare part that we obviously have been surrounded for the last 40 years is really the art of working within and using the spectrum to our advantage. That's a good summary. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And yeah, we've all had the fun of, uh, you know, when our phone doesn't work or um, and feeling like we've, we've missed out on part of the world. But let's continue on with electromagnetic spectrum and so on. And should we be considering the electromagnetic spectrum as a domain alongside air, land, sea, cyber, and space domains that we already have? Oh, that's a, that's a good starting question, Grant. That it's, and it's been one of the questions that continually pops its head up across military circles all the time. And we all know the classic domains, as you've just correctly identified, land, sea, air, space, cyber, information. But the simple fact is you need to consider that the spectrum would work in each one of those domains. You would need that spectrum. For several years, military commanders grapple with understanding how the EM spectrum works. But the fact is, is that whether it's a domain in its own right or not, each one of the other domains would need to use the spectrum to manoeuvre and send information and work together as a team. So it is a priority for every department and every platform across all domains to use the spectrum. So I think in answer to your question is really because we're trying to fuse all the information together, that's the joint force operations, that's what we strive to do as a military these days. Therefore, you know, I believe the military thinking is they're very happy with where it sits at the moment. And that is the EM spectrum supports all of the other domains. It's unique. And it's got to be part of each domain thinking. So if it's common across all of them, should there be a joint environment for looking after the EM spectrum? Because otherwise they're all going to be trying to do their own part in it. And there won't be, they'll, they'll be like, there won't be a coordinated effort across it because they'll all need it. Correct. And, and that is a, that is certainly points that are raised by certain groups that are saying we shouldn't talk about air, land, sea um, as federated domains. We have got to get us talking off the same page. That's the that's the message that joint is about and how we disseminate information across those domains. So there is a, a rule of thinking that we should really drop 
the other domains and just call it one big domain and everything is in there. That That's definitely something that I've heard. Um, but there's still that large group of uh, military senior leaders that seem to feel that we don't want another domain. We should be looking at it that we will support each domain with the EM spectrum and therefore it remains unique and used by all. Yeah, and I, I can sort of add to that, Grant, as well. In, in that, obviously, in the military domain at the moment, there is the recent establishment of the Joint Electromagnetic Spectrum Operations Cell, or GENSOC. And that's really forcing all three services and also other government agencies to do this joint planning. Because looking within that spectrum, as Phil's already said, it's such a finite resource. We have to be able to operate within it without causing fratricide or limiting those sort of effects. So there is joint EMSO doctrine out as well, which is forcing us down this path. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you. So moving on, how is the Australian Defence Force embracing EMSO? We know about the RAAF having Growler, Wedgetail, Triton, soon to have Peregrine, but what about Navy and Army? Where are they at? Yeah, another brilliant contemporary question. Um, I did mention the joint EMSO planning that's forcing people down that particular route at the moment, but in my opinion, the Royal Australian Air Force's experience in the EMSO domain leads the other two services by a country mile. Now, I'm a dyed-in-the-wood army person, you know, dyed-in-the-wool army person for sure. So some listeners might not like me to say that. But because the aircraft and the platforms they use, a bit like the Growler and the F-35, we've procured them through the United States. So we rely on the United States to support those aircraft as well and some of the operational piece around it. So it becomes really important that the GEMSO or EMSO piece is joint and we all understand how to operate it, especially when we start supporting operations and real live activities. So just to explain about the Australian Army and the Navy piece, I spoke about the Air Force and how they're leaders at the moment. So when the Australian Army is part of a joint force, the electromagnetic spectrum planning is conducted through the operational headquarters in Canberra. So obviously, as I said before, the spectrum planning is deconflicted. For the Australian Army and the Australian Navy, currently we do not have any electronic attack capabilities like the Growler. So as the Army receive new electronic attack capabilities uh, under land triple five phase six for Army and a number of other programs for Navy, they will have to go on this journey of discovery and learn from the, the Air Force in a joint environment. We're going in and everyone's getting up on, up to speed on EMSO and so on, but we've got a great example of EMSO in the real world happening right now in Ukraine. Uh, you were talking just before about fratricide in the EMSO, and we saw that with the, the Russians, their EM was taking out their own comms at one point. So... What do you see happening in Ukraine in the uh, IMSO world and what is the ADF learning from all that? Again, um, I think we, for once, and I, I've only just seen this, is that, of course, this is very public now. People are seeing this all the time through normal media channels. But if I had to provide three points on what you've just asked there about what we're witnessing unfold in Ukraine, but also not forgetting other areas like the Red Sea, which we have with the drone problems and things like that. I'd put it down to these three points, Grant. I think the first is the constant struggle for spectrum dominance. In other words, owning it. So as you know, and as the listeners would know, we are now very much reliant 
on all military equipment will need to interact with the spectrum at some point. It will use that spectrum to do something. If we're heavy-handed, in other words, if we decide to say, I'm going to turn on and do an active response and take out the spectrum for everybody, I've also taken it out for myself. So now the challenge is, of course, is I don't know what's happening either. And with that, this is where Dave's really relevant point of this is where blue on blue examples start to really take shape. We don't know what's happening and therefore we're getting confused. And I think that's one of the things that spectrum dominance is about. You've got to control it. Um, We've got to have a targeted approach for tactics in EW, as we see with Russia and everything else like that. It's the surgical strikes where we are focused in a particular area of the spectrum to do a particular job, not trying to broad brush everything and then realizing that we're actually, we've limited our own um, position simply because of what we're doing in the spectrum itself. And I think, you know, Western technology, of course, requires access to GPS and information and things like that. We need that. So, of course, what do we use? Smart weapons. If we've lost the active part and the GPS has been manipulated, I don't think we can consider these weapons smart. So we're back to unguided weapons. We're back to what we used to do in the past, all because of spectrum dominance and how that might be. Second point, everyone, I believe, and Ukraine is seeing this more and more, everyone, regardless of who they are, must understand the spectrum. They must really get what they are doing. Because 30 years ago, when obviously Dave and I were very much part of this, the military was the big user. We used it to effect and we were largely on our own doing what we did. But the commercial use and that 5G and GPS and that everybody uses today is causing the challenges. Everybody uses smartwatches. So those smartwatches, or they have a mobile phone, they're all commonplace and they're all on the battlefield. So for instance, you may not be an electromagnetic specialist. You might be an engineer or logistics person, but you're wearing a smartwatch or you're on your mobile phone. So everybody has to be really careful about doing something that could end up in a in a difficult state it is everybody's responsibility to understand that your smartwatch is connecting with something and it is everybody's responsibility to realize that if they make a quick phone call home that could have a devastating consequence and 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 that's what it is and you're seeing that all the time now where people because of the youth have brought have been brought up with these sorts of uh, technologies, they're not that keen to get rid of them, and so therefore um, they want to continue. Uh, and letter writing doesn't happen anymore. So, um, and of course, the third one is low cost. Um, again, what I'm seeing unfold there: the use of low cost electromagnetic capabilities to confuse, deny, manipulate that spectrum. You've just got to go onto the website to see what is available that anybody could buy, GPS jammers, scanners, doesn't matter, hundreds of dollars. And that's right, $100 gets you something. 30 years ago, the word of EW was really, oh, it's the dark arts or they're the guys that sit in the back cave. But of course, today, Young engineers are building high-quality, software-defined technology, high-end expensive military equipment, 
they, this will continue to struggle to keep pace with the emerging technologies that are here today. They can be operated as well by a simple mobile phone app. You wouldn't believe this. You know, 30 years ago, we were using dedicated systems to operate within the spectrum. But now, people are using mobile phones, quickly reconfiguring things and doing different tasking. And we've got to really learn from that. So if I ask the question um, with drone communications and things like that, if I was asked that, photonic technologies, that's being done now. So when GPS signals are not available because somebody has manipulated that GPS signal, photonics will take over. And more and more, it's important that we have to train for these things to realize that things will keep adapting and changing and trialing at the low cost levels. So you ask the question, is the ADF learning from everything that I've just put forward there? And I think it's probably fair to say that we can always do more. We can always learn more. There's probably very few serving members in the ADF that, ex that have experienced, in my view, a denied or a degraded EM environment. And with the pace of change that's happening across all of these different hot zones that we hear about all the time, it's more important than ever that we have to train our service people with good quality training that will replicate what they will encounter in real life. Because once you understand it and you've seen it, then you're more likely to be able to do something about it. And simple things like Sully, the pilot that managed to get the airliner down on the Hudson River in the United States when everything was going wrong in that cockpit. But the fact that he was able to go through there, the simulator and everything else like that, it didn't tell him, but he worked out what he had to do. And, and I suppose I, I look at that in a similar way that an EW practitioner would say, I can't do anything in this spectrum at the moment. It's not available to me. So how am I going to gain that edge? And what am I going to do? And what is going to get me back on the critical path of EM spectrum superiority? This is an interesting part. You, you mentioned training and, of course, exercises. And clearly, the Russians hadn't done a combined exercise. Well, they wouldn't have stomped on their own comms. But you have a difficulty doing this because now people have got satellites overhead or they've got a ship just outside your international waters monitoring the spectrum. So is this where we get a lot more of the live virtual constructive kind of training because you can't actually turn everything on because people will listen and, and watch and see what you're doing and develop countermeasures so that when it comes to the real world, for instance, we hear about systems that have war mode and you train and do everything like this, but when you go to war, you shift it over to the real, real world and it's a whole different thing that they haven't seen because you're trying to surprise them with it. Has that layered a lot more complexity into the training or do you see the modern world of the computer systems making it easier to do this kind of training in that live virtual constructive environment? Um, it comes down to cost, Grant. It comes down to what can we physically do with the money that we have to train our uh, military um, practitioners. And for instance, 
when we do things in simulators and things like that, yes, there's a cost, but it actually is quite quiet. You, you're not exactly going to tell everybody what you're doing things. As you start to go into the realistic scenarios and you go out into the field, the cost just complete, just goes up in tenfold because you're actually using it in real life. The trouble is, and in the trouble with the EM spectrum, is you've got to understand the spectrum and try and transmit within it to find what happens in the real world. Simulating it, you can do, but it's very clean. So we're trying to make it as accurate as possible, both from a simulated way. So I think there's a bit of balance here that we need to understand. Some things we'll only do in a very closed environment, in a compartmentalized, secure facility or something like that. But equally, sometimes we do need to go and do something to find out what the effects are with the environment as it is, because it might be raining on the day or it might you might have a different um, uh, lots of terrain where you've got a lot of clutter or something like that. But the bottom line is, is that there's, I suppose there's no real, there's no real challenge unless you get onto that racetrack and you really go and go, go hell for leather to get that car around the racetrack in the shortest possible time. And I think the same can be said with EW and understanding how it works in real life. There's going to be some very sensitive technologies that you do not want to broadcast over the air for obvious reasons. But for the majority of people, you really need to train as you fight. I mean, that's been a term that's been used over a number of years and it may well have fallen off the radar. But I know from experience that there are not that many members have actually operated in that denied to grenaded you know, intermittent and limited spectrum. We do need to be able to exercise in that space as a formation, you know, as a joint force. Personally, I'm unaware if there's an EM spectrum range in Australia where defence can be exercised to operate in this type of environment where you can turn systems on, turn systems off, just to see how they react. It's a bit late when they're firing rounds on a two-way range towards you to try and experience this and turn to a commander and say, I'm sorry, sir, I can't get through, or mom, I can't get through on the comms today, what are we going to do? So generally, the ADF can't take the EM spectrum for granted. It's really important that everyone understands it. So traditionally, it used to be um, the communicators and the EW people that only ever understood it. But now the commanders have got to understand it. It's a finite resource. You've got to operate it within it and through it. And just to quote that General Brown, who was recently appointed to the Joint US Chiefs of Staff, for him to stand up on his first day or whatever it was and say, we've dropped the ball on electronic warfare. That's a big, gutsy call. But they're actually doing uh, something about it that we've read in the open press about, you know, they're addressing the issue. Yeah, he said what many of us have been saying for some time. He actually opened up and said it. And honesty in military and and communication on, and military and politics can hurt, but it can actually spur things on and actually help industry to help defense. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. Spot on. Couldn't agree more. Well, moving in, we've spoken about Ukraine and what Russia and Ukraine are learning there. What other MSO capabilities are our potential adversaries fielding now? And what do you see them developing in the near future? So currently we've sort of, we know that through open source reporting, that there's a significant increase, obviously, in the uptake of these cheap drones. They're being used as attack vectors against vessels, you know, against um, electronic warfare systems. And really, they're having a really effective way of doing business against state-of-the-art capabilities that cost tens of millions of dollars. And this really is only just set to increase. You know, there's going to be more of this type of capability. Talking about the GPS system, the global positioning system earlier, 
They're now starting to spoof those systems, provide your GPS with false data. And as Phil and you quite right, correctly pointed out, you know, without that GPS, where's that munition going to land? So that's driven it down another avenue whereby we have to look for assured precision navigation timing or PNT to counter the spoofing effect. So again, I think that will increase in the future. Certainly in the near future and the here and now, one of the big discussion points that I've listening in, in media and also on online is the fact that the military are now looking to move their communications away from traditional communications bands for the military and move them into the civilian infrastructure to hide amongst the noise or hide in plain sight, you know, remain under that detect threshold. And of course, there's a massive increase in the use of robotic systems, which rely on the GPS. But the smarter ones now are just being programmed to hug the terrain. They don't need to communicate. They're out of the EMS. That will happen. Now, you and I could probably talk about cognitive EW methods in the future, the subject of a complete podcast for several hours. But this, just so you're aware, really is a growth area. Australia's got a great reputation for technical people and small to medium enterprises around Australia are really keen and eager to get involved in developing and understanding these tools and informing the Defence Force of how we might do this, you know, both academia and industry. We'd look forward to in the future working very closely with the AUKUS Pillar 2 non-submarine again, looking at the demand in this electronic warfare space. And as a small company, we really are agile enough to support that. Well, let's wrap it up with a final question then. And what do you think we should be doing to ensure the ADF can hold their own on the battlefield against current and near future MSO capabilities? Uh, well, certainly for, for the ADF at the moment, for us, that, that requirement to train as you fight, that has got to be paramount, really, to really understand how you can do that. As we mentioned before, not taking the EM spectrum for granted is another area. And really, perhaps listening to what that general had the, you know, stood up and said, if we're not doing it right and we need to fix it, let's be open and honest and say, let's get this fixed. Because if we keep hiding behind secrecy, which is the traditional way of doing it, we really are not going to help anybody in the longer term. And, and if I can add, Dave, I think in Grant's um, training, training, more training, you know, uh, provide these facilities. It's not as though Australia doesn't have a bit of space and could go somewhere and uh, be able to just crawl, walk, run showing these things as they appear and what they appear to to our practitioners. I think that's really important. High intensity as well, spectrum training. We've got to build the layers of complexity. So multi-asymmetric type threats. It, it, it's wrong to consider that you're just going to have one problem from one direction to have to deal with. You might have multiple problems coming at you from various different angles. If we don't train for that, if we don't look at how we can actually prioritize that, then we're not going to fare very well. I, I feel that this needs to be exposed and training will do that, especially in the spectrum where we can actually stop, start, do it again. Stop, start, do it again. Look, we have, as Dave pointed out, we have got some fantastic industry players in Australia that are highly agile. They understand the new technologies coming through the, uh, the different um, R&D facilities around the world. AUKUS Pillar 2, that is absolutely the place where the three countries can be looking together at how we can better how we work within the spectrum. But of course, none of this means anything if we can't reduce the cycle of new technology getting into the 
the hands of the people that need it. If we are going to keep offering these capabilities and they're going into operation four years later, the world's moved on. And, and so because of that, we're already not able to, to benefit from the technical experience of, of, of these new technologies or rather the companies that are building them with this. Get them into service, get them onto a range, find out how they can work, get them into operational service and make them as simple as you can possibly do. And that's my final point, testing, testing, and more testing. And that's the complexity, build up layers of testing. So you stress test a system, find out when it breaks in the environment, when it can't handle anything more that the spectrum's doing. We need to know when that point is, because otherwise we just keep using it and sorry, it then falls over. We have to wait for it to reset itself and everything else like that. That's what we have to do to hold our own because this is only going to get more complex. It's only going to get more targeted and, and, and clinical and everything else. And we need to be ready for that. And we need to understand what we would do when our normal way of doing business is no longer available to us. And how do you fight in a darkened room? You learn how to fight with a blindfold. <laughs> well said. Uh, well same said. thing. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, it seems like a good spot to wrap up the uh, discussion, but are there any takeaways that you want people to remember just as a final parting blow? I think um, I'll take the four takeaways that I know Dave and I have discussed here. And I think the first one that we want the listeners to understand is that it is everybody's responsibility now to understand the EM spectrum and how they use it themselves. The art of controlling and confidence when operating across the spectrum Let's be honest, in the EM spectrum, using a targeted electromagnetic response can stop a military action from happening before it's too late. Low-cost technologies will continue to flood the market, meaning Western forces need to adapt and evolve to counter these technologies that will change at speed. This does require a different mindset from our leaders, and it requires a different mindset from our capability acquisition people of how we do things. And I think finally, machine learning and AI, we are all over it now. If it's not ChatGBT, if it's not Microsoft Copilot, the simple fact is, is that it will form the backbone of the EM spectrum analysis of the future. The human in the loop needs to now be presented with simple, digestible, and time-sensitive information that allows military commanders to make the right informed decisions at the right time. Without that, and without blending AI and machine learning, the human brain is not quick enough to be able to look at multiple different things at coming in at the same time. It can do two relatively well with training. It can do three or four maybe, but we're not talking that. We're talking multiples of that. And therefore, AI machine learning is the future in the, in the electromagnetic spectrum. Well, it sounds like we've got lots to talk about on future episodes. It's going to be great to get you folks back. But for now, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been enjoyable. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. And um, we'll look forward to touching base with you again very soon. Fantastic. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow this podcast in your favorite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they're released. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. 
The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa Media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.